Hey, Brian. Hey, Jared. How do you know when you've made it to the big time? Well, I think you would know by the what people have to say to you um, and what people say they don't like about you. Well, it's funny you should say that, not the latter, but our show today actually comes from a listener's question. Yes, our little podcast has its first call-in, well, email-in question, if you will, and it has to do with the role of women in the church. I got to tell I'm you. glad they asked us an easy one. Yeah, this is a big one, right? I'm Jared. And I'm Brian. And this is Biblically Speaking, the podcast. All right, buddy. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. You talk about minefield for two male preachers. We're going to go to the Bible and see what it actually says about the role of women in worship. Now, we want to do a little more than just touch on you know who can do what. We want to try to get into, and I think the spirit of the question was, uh, why are the differences there? Does it discount women in any kind of way? Are there passages that show us that that God that God sees women with a degree of equality, even though we're separated by the things that we're allowed to do? And we're going to touch on all of that because our goal here on Biblically Speaking is to speak like the Bible speaks. So let's um let's sort of open it up because I thought you had a great point in the pre-show notes that we were going through that we really want to, we really want to speak about this clearly. What were your, what were some of your concerns when you thought about this topic right off the top of your head? You know, if somebody says, Hey, Brian, uh, tell me about the role of women in, in the church. Uh, there's a lot of people that might say, Brian, the very fact that you're not a woman means that you're not going to be able to explain this very well. Now, that kind of pro- uh, process or of maybe thinking you don't is even a common, have a voice in this, maybe? Or maybe I shouldn't have a voice. Yeah. Absolutely right. Um, and that's a philosophy today, uh, a philosophy that a lot of people have that if you lack experience or if you lack um, direct contact with something, you lack a credible voice. It's, it's, it's part of our philosophy of postmodernism, the yeah. idea that truth is relevant. Um, and it, the truth is relevant in this case only to those that have experiences with it. Now, well, it's now kind of the fallout of secular humanism, isn't it? That the, right, the human right. ideal is the great ideal, and therefore every person's experience is different, and therefore their knowledge is relevant to them, kind of thing. Yeah, and you and I, of course, as Christians, are pre-modernists. In other words, we believe the idea that information is revealed from uh, from a source. In our case, we would say from a divine source. Mm-hmm. And we believe that that information allows us to speak with an authority. And and we have a lot of statements in the Bible that say to speak with authority and Mm. to to, uh, speak from the oracles of God. So Mm -hmm. while I can't speak from an experience on something like this necessarily, I can speak from the oracles of God, which, again, if you're a Christian— that's going to be the thing that's the most relevant to you, not not what mm-hmm. my experiences are, well, but what the Word of God says. And along those lines, one of the things that we want to do as we're speaking the oracles of God is we want to make sure that we're not being tone deaf. That that yeah. what we don't want to do, and and I, I'm not trying to caveat this nine different ways before we get started, but it is talking about the elephant in the room. What we don't want to do is, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman, you don't get to question me, kind of, well, not you, but the audience. That right. You don't get to quit. Brian is, Brian is not a woman. That... <laughs> Well, you can tell by the long hair, right? That, uh, That's exactly right. That uh, you don't get to question me because of my authority. Nothing, nothing could be further than the truth. Nor is it. Nor is there any inherent patriarchy to this. But uh, to what Brian was saying, uh, Paul, when he was writing to one of the young preachers, as he's bringing the letter of Second Timothy to a close. In fact, as he's really starting to to wind down Second Timothy and get into what is probably the most famous part of the letter. 
he, he reminds Timothy in verse 16, after telling him in chapter 2, verse 15, to study, to show himself, or give diligence to show himself someone that's approved to handle the Word of God by being able to divide it correctly. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. I mean, that, that word inspired is a cool word. It literally means God breathed into this. That all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the source of wisdom, the source of knowledge, the, the source of divine authority that we have for the things that we teach is not vested in, I'm a, I'm a man, and and someone else is a woman, it is vested in the fact that this is how God set things up. And so I'm going to tell our audience right from the very beginning that some of the things that we say today may rub you the wrong way. And what I hope you'll do is that you'll pray about them, you'll read them, and you'll understand that we don't always un- we don't always see behind the curtain to know why God says and does and structures things the way that he does. But as someone who wants to surrender my will to God and surrender my life to God, I can't do that and resist his will. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yeah, I think it's a great way of saying it. And I think it's important for us to understand, maybe not just in this podcast, but every podcast, when we uh, when we have the word of God, you have the word of God and I have the word of God, we're completely equal mm-hmm. because we both have the exact same authority. And I don't mean you and I, Jared, I mean you... I and everybody listening. So you and I had worked up kind of some different thoughts about this rather than just coming up with one homogenous set of questions. I thought this was a lesson that we needed to be more organic in. And and I'm actually, Brian and I, and hey, if you're listening to this and, and particularly if you're watching this on YouTube, if you would, if you like this idea, leave a comment below. But Brian and I had talked about the possibility of getting our wives involved in a second bite at the apple sort of maybe a few weeks later where we can get get the, a woman's perspective on on what they hear when they hear these passages and, and how they sort of take comfort in that and, and, and what they take away from that. So, you know, be sure to leave that in a comment. I mean, this is, it would just be a, a four-person discussion. It wouldn't be uh, a Q&A or anything like that. But if you, if you have questions, you could send them in. I mean, you can always, you can always uh, email me at biblicallyspeakingtruth at gmail.com or you can leave them in the comments to the below. We would love to hear your questions and love to hear your comments on doing a second show on this with our wives involved. And the more of you that say yes, the more likely we probably are going to be to get them involved that they both think we're a little mad for doing this. But here we go. All right, so let's start with some of what you put down. I, I liked I, I liked the flow of logic that you presented when you sent me sort of your notes on it, and then we'll we'll bounce into mine after after we look at some of your thoughts. But go ahead. Yeah, I want to start off by saying um, maybe we could even start by just saying, are there different roles in the assembly for men and women? Okay. And what if so, why? Um, and I'll say this to say, I, I suspect there's a lot of people today that don't even believe that's true or simply don't understand why it could be true. And mm-hmm. so maybe the first thing to to jump into is to say, are there different roles for men and women? And, and if so, why are there different roles okay. for men and women in the assembly? All right, let's let's go with that. What what did you what do you think is the passages that you would look at uh, to discuss this with somebody to talk about different roles of men and women in the assembly? You know, uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, there are some really uh, sometimes people feel like they're shocking statements that the Apostle Paul makes or uh, uh, Jesus makes or others make about the characteristics of the roles of men and women in the assembly. Maybe mm-hmm. the very first thing I would start off by saying is 
that maybe people don't always understand that the assembly is something special. First yeah. Corinthians chapter 14 is where I like to go. And in First Corinthians chapter 14, the apostle Paul uh, is describing the idea of how a church comes together. Uh, way back in chapter 11, he said, this is the assembly where they came together to take the Lord's Supper. And he's kind of been elaborating on it in chapter 12 and chapter 13. And now in chapter 14, he's trying to describe to them the way that this assembly is carried out. Now, we see this assembly all through the New Testament. We see it in Acts chapter 20. We see it in Acts chapter 2. We see it, uh, James talks about it in James chapter 2. Um, this assembly that happens uh, for these purposes, Paul says, is characterized with one big idea. That mm -hmm. everything needs to be done decently and in order. That's the very final statement in yeah. chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. Everything has to be done decently and in order. And as he is describing that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he makes this statement that a lot of people find shocking. Uh, as he speaks about these things, he says women in verse 34 are to keep silent in the churches. They're not permitted to speak. They're to be submissive, the law says. And that's, um, that's one of those passages that, as I said, it, it gets a lot of shocking attention. Uh, shocking attention, you might say, when Paul says this. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes when people see something like this, they they question, well, wait a second. Is this, is this Paul speaking to all churches or is this Paul speaking just to one church? And, of course, what's interesting is Paul says it's church plural, mm -hmm. uh, giving us a hint that Paul is saying that this is something – that all churches have in common. Yeah. Um, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I was going to say that that's one of the the sort of the pushbacks that I've heard for years on that is that this was a cultural thing in Corinth, or this was a uh, I, man. I was having a discussion with with actually a girlfriend in high school about this. I mean, he talked about a lot of years ago these questions were coming up, but that was one of the discussions that I remember. I was sitting down with a girlfriend in high school, and she she didn't much like the idea that that I worshiped with a group of people that, that believe this. And, and in her opinion, the, you know, the Bible was just from a misogynistic culture and that this was cultural rather than something that really came from God. And, and I would be careful with that kind of thinking because I mean, Peter, when he's, when he's talking about Paul's writing, he calls them scripture. And that's the same word that Paul used over in second Timothy chapter two or chapter three to talk about all of that, all that had been revealed by God, you know, through Jesus, through the prophets, through the apostles, that it was all considered scripture and that he wasn't the source of that. God is the source of that, is the thing that you have to keep in mind. And that before before we weigh in on how this might make somebody feel or, or cultural, uh, cultural inconsistencies or something like that, the first thing we've got to understand is that we're talking fundamentally about something not revealed by Paul. It was revealed by God. You know, you used a big word there. Um, remember, I got a little brain. Tell me about that word misogynistic. How would you describe that if I were uh, eight years old? Uh, do you do you remember Captain Caveman? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but I mean, it's just kind of the idea that that men need men need to rule the world, and that men speak to. And I and I do realize the irony of two men sitting around talking about this that yeah, we're essentially man. Sure. You know, we might be accused of mansplaining. <laughs> the, the uh, role of men and women through a podcast. But that's not, that's not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is reveal the Word of God. And that idea of misogynistic behavior or misogynism, misogyny is, a, is the belief fundamentally that men are superior to women and that somehow our society is built on that. And that, that 
if you're going to say that Paul allowed, you know, misogyny to creep into to the word or to his writing, then it can't be from God. So that that means we begin to question well, what parts of this Bible are from God and what parts of the Bible aren't from God? So fundamentally, there, there's a problem there. If I'm going to say, I want to follow Jesus and I want to follow God, that if I say, well, I don't like this because I and I just believe that is one person's opinion or it's a cultural thing when it's not, it's I mean, we're not talking like Old Testament food laws where we see them repealed in the New Testament or something of that nature. We're not talking about a, a cultural thing here that that Paul is saying, this is for the churches. And, and he... As you pointed out in your notes to me, he he touches on this in some other places too, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. And one of the things I always like to kind of contrast, I, I actually want to uh, double down on that point you made first, though. Okay. If if Paul is uh, inherently biased, mm-hmm. uh, if Paul is sinfully biased, and let's be honest, a bias is sinful. Yes. Uh, in James chapter two, James makes the statement very plainly. He says, hey, you've got to be unbiased. He uh you know, he talks about the idea of, uh, in this case, he's talking about rich and poor people, but he says, right. you've got to hold the faith of Christ without partiality. Mm-hmm. So if Paul is, uh, there's that word misogynistic, if Paul is misogynistic, if he is biased towards men and he just wants to, to you know, downplay the work of women, then everything Paul writes is now, um, is now called into question. Mm-hmm. Now, the dilemma is, also, everything that talks about Paul. So the writings of Luke are now thrown into question because yeah. Luke was one of Paul's companions. And uh, and then, of course, we have ties to, you mentioned Peter talking about Paul. Well, we got to throw out the writings of Peter. So And, you know, uh, I, I'm glad you brought up. Go down a road. I'm glad you brought up follow. Peter there because just in case we, we, we might be tempted to think that, the Bible actually gives us an example where it calls out somebody for this behavior that they're, that we're saying, or that some are saying that Paul was engaged in. And that was when Peter engaged in, it wasn't outright racism, but it was favoritism, uh, when some of his own people or some of, some of his brethren from Jerusalem came up and he began to distance himself from the Gentiles in Galatians chapter 2. Well, Paul is recounting this story as a means of, as part of the the uh, instruction he's giving to the churches in Galatia about don't go back to the law. The law is nothing. It was all pointing toward Christ. He said, look, Peter was carried away by people who came up, you know, claiming they were from James. They they came up from Jerusalem, and he was he started fellowshipping with them and stopped fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And what did Paul do? Do you remember when when he... Go ahead. Paul, Paul says, I rebuked him to his face yeah. in front of everybody. Yeah, that there's no place for that, for racism or misogyny or any claim that the Bible is built on racism or misogyny in Scripture because it's actually dealt with in a pretty drastic fashion. And guess what, you know, foreshadowing, foreshadowing, you know, plug away, plug away. That's what our topic's going to be about next week is we're going to talk about some of the almost racist claims that are made about Jesus as he's presented as this woke figure in our culture rather than the biblical example of who Jesus is. So be sure to watch, be sure to watch or listen to that show when it drops next week. But you know, getting back to our topic, your point there I think is well-founded, that if that has crept into Scripture, then all I can't just say, well, I don't like this, so I'm now going to go listen to, to Joyce Meyer talk about everything else the Bible says. 
if if that is something that was cultural and wasn't presented that way, or that's something that's crept into Scripture because Paul was inherently biased against women, then it calls all the Bible into account, all the way back to and including Jesus. Right. So um, obviously, like I said, very first thing we want to think about is that's a serious thing to accuse of. But then, yeah. then I'd like to add the second statement. The most radical statement made in the first century, probably at that point, I would say in history, is a statement that the Apostle Paul makes in Galatians 3 and verse 28. Oh, yes. And this statement would have been the kind of thing that would have just blown people's brains up when they read it. They mm-hmm. would have they would have dropped it when they read this. And, and probably every, our listeners know the passage. Paul tells the Galatian, the churches of Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave or free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that statement is the most radical statement that had been made in history up to that time. Because Paul is saying, uh, whether it's race, whether it's class, or whether it's gender, that none of those things hold a distinction before God. So God gives no preference. And this is the gospel that is preached by Paul, mm-hmm. that God does not have a, a a favorite distinction among anybody. And like I said, this was something that nobody said before Paul. Mm-hmm. The great Greek philosopher said things like, you know, Aristotle said, oh, woman is just a, a lesser man. Um, other philosophers would say things like, well, you know, the race of the Greeks is, and all others are barbarians or uh, some, you in fact, know, Paul even alludes common... to that in Rome in Romans. When, that's right. That's yeah, right. When he says bar, when he talks about I'm indebted to both to both uh, barbarians and Greeks, and, and the idea right. there of, of barbarians meant people that didn't talk very good. They were that's literally the Greek word for babbling. Yeah, that's right. Because they they believe they just went bar 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 bar, and that was where the word came from. That's kind of neat. You you knew that. So so the whole point is is Paul misogynist? He makes the most anti-misogynist statement in history, uh, writing here. Uh, and of course, you and I understand, and, and our listeners hopefully understand too, Paul didn't say this, God said this, right? Um, as with all of these writings. So so here is Paul making this statement. Somebody comes along and says, yeah, I think these New Testament writers were just you know products of their time. There is nothing about Galatians 3.28 that is a product of its time. No, no, no. It is Nothing. totally against time. And you know, that is not the only statement like that in Scripture. Exactly right. That when right. you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, and he's giving, you know, he's telling wives to live with their husbands in it to 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 show the submission of Sarah to their husbands, particularly those husbands that might have wandered away or never been converted because they might convert them. The very next thing he says in verse 7 is, you husbands... In the same way. So just like I told the wife to be submissive to your needs, that means you need to be submissive to her needs in the same way, because this is what honors God. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor and fellow as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And talking about someone weaker and she is a woman, I mean, those words are a little inflammatory when we hear them, but then he sort of spins it in a different way, that Culture might tell you she's weak. Culture might tell you she's just a woman. But what Peter is saying is you treat her like someone who is inheriting grace, not because of you, but directly from God. 
And that that's sort of a revolutionary statement that that there is the acknowledgement that men and women are different. What Peter is saying is, okay, if 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 she's the weaker vessel, then treat her with honor. You don't step on her. You treat her with honor. You live with her in an understanding way. You you understand what her needs are, and you better realize he's going to go on to say that your salvation hangs on whether or not you treat her as someone who is inheriting grace directly from God. Because if you don't, God's not going to listen to you. That's you know that's a revolutionary really, kind of statement. What's really interesting, you just said it, and I was actually loading my gun to say it too, and you beat me to it. <laughs> is that Paul's statement, Galatians three twenty eight, is a radical statement for his day. Now you just made, uh, you just pulled from the scriptures a radical statement for our day mm-hmm. that men and women are different. Yeah. Now that is something that's unacceptable to our culture today, and and I and I carefully say probably not necessarily. Most people would say, yeah, I know men and women are different, but we're we're in a society that absolutely does not want that to be the case. That mm-hmm. we don't want any acknowledgement that men and women are different. That we might think differently, that we might behave differently, that we might have different strengths. Uh, you know, outrageously, even our bodies might be different. All Shocking. of those are things that. Our, our society is absolutely intent on erasing. Yeah. So so what's neat is that 2,000 years ago, the Bible said something that was so radical that society, um, by the way, th- that passage is why a lot of Christians died, because the society said, you're teaching something awful. What you said, that the Bible indicates that men and women are different, mm-hmm. is also radical, and a lot of people get really upset about that today, too. Yeah, and the funny thing about it is, is he's not saying one is less than the other. What he told them was respect the fact that you're different from each other, and if you don't pay attention to that, you're in this covenant relationship of husband and wife, and you're not respecting that, you're hindering your walk with God. That you, that you need to you need to treat your husband like someone that you're trying to bring to the Lord if he isn't, and you need to treat your wife like someone who has inherited grace from the Lord, and not treat her the way culture and society says to treat her, even though she's different. And and that's and that like you said, that's sort of a revolutionary. It would have been a revolutionary revolutionary statement in their time, and it's a revolutionary statement in our time. But think about some other examples. Think about about when. When the woman brought who was taken in adultery was 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 brought to Jesus, if he, anybody could have accused her, it would have been him. And his message to her was, after none of them could, go your way and sin no more. Or when he's talking to the woman at the well in John chapter four, the disciples are amazed when, he, when they come out of the city. He's talking to a woman. Well, yeah, he was, and that. But the conversation that he had with her was so deep that you. He doesn't say it in so many words, except that he sort of does. That may be one of the first people in Scripture that he ever revealed his his place as the Messiah to. Uh, yeah, and it, was a it, Samaritan woman, a different race, at a well. And not just that. We talk about the women that were the first witnesses of his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, the women that were the. You know, uh, uh, Christianity, you know, uh, from the very beginning, glorified women while at the same time saying we're different and therefore we have different roles. And that's the thing I think that is is the exploration point for us yeah. is to say um, if, if the scriptures are saying, hey, before God, we're we're the same. We have the same uh, nature. We're divinely created, you know, the Genesis chapter one, God creates man in his image, male and mm-hmm. female, he creates him. 
Um, and of course, I, by the way, don't get confused that sometimes when the Bible says man, we're talking about humanity, um, yeah. you know, as as it might be the case. But man and woman are both made in the image of God. That mm-hmm. That's that's the kind of thing that you can't really say, well, what's the equality to? Because there's nothing like it. You're talking about God. Yeah. Um, you know, man and woman are made in the image of God, but we have different roles. Mm-hmm. And so that might be the thing we explore here when we look at uh, first Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. And then we say, hey, wait a second. The same guy that said that says 1 Timothy 2. Uh, I'm going to read this one, uh, okay. 1 Timothy 2, uh, 11 and 12. Let the let women learn in silence with all su- subjection. Um, Paul speaking here to uh, Timothy, and he's giving instructions for how churches are to behave. Yeah. Um, he says, he goes on to say in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but be in silence. Um, it's an interesting thing that he says here, uh, as he's speaking, that women aren't to have an authoritative role. And again, we're talking about the church mm-hmm. uh, in particular, authoritative role over a man. Right. He goes on to elaborate. He says it, it connects itself all the way back to Adam and Eve, um, you know, verse 13 and 14. And then he even makes this real strange point about women being saved in childbearing. Um, which I actually think is really great consideration for us of Paul saying we are all saved in the roles that God gives us to perform. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, well, I tell you what, uh, uh, rather than uh, go into my own examples, my own thoughts, uh, I'm going to steer it back to you, Jared, and say, what do you think when somebody says reconcile these passages? Well, it is. Where do you go? One of the things that I think makes it so tough to reconcile for so many people is that we often take a 21st century view of language and we try to write it on a first century document. Trying to change language is an issue. That The idea of subjection in our mind is a terrible thing. But when you understand that, that God creates order, because man needs order, what we see is right from the very beginning that he developed, he developed an order in fact, when he created woman, uh, women in or the woman, the first woman in Genesis chapter two, it talks about him creating someone, and the word that it uses is that the phrase it uses is a helper suitable to his opposite. That it was it was somebody who his strength would meet her need and her strength would meet his need. And that's the idea of, of subjection there, is that you're bringing your strength to his need. And, and what's interesting about that is when you look at, before we get to the first, the, the first Timothy 2 passage, when you look at the other places where that shows up in the Bible, like Ephesians chapter 6, wives be in subjection to your husband as unto the Lord, turns right around and says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it's all about elevating her and taking care of her needs and if you don't do that, then you don't really appreciate what Jesus has done for you. So we have this knee-jerk reaction to that word subjection when we see it, that mm-hmm. s- somehow subjection is taking from me and giving to you. I'm not taking anything from my wife because my job is to is to set the spiritual tone. And she has, by God, as one of the gifts that God gives her, the right to expect that from her husband. And that's one of the things that's happened is we've corrupted this idea of husbands and wives and men and women so much that we don't see that that be in subjection to your husband and husbands love your wives is really sort of the same instruction. It's bring your strength to their need. And so when you look at that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says some things there that are 
that are a little bit eye-opening. But this idea in verse 11 of a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, that what he seems to be saying there is what's going to hamper that instruction is you're unwilling to submit to things. And then he says, and I do not, so here's the thing that you're going to have to submit to, that I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And then he tells us why, that Adam was created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now, it goes back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, it never says Adam was deceived by the serpent. Eve was deceived by the serpent. And then he says in verse 15, the woman will be preserved through the bearing of children. But I like how he ends this. If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That's such a big thought there, and it's something that our society is trying to write off all the time because it is talking about salvation through differences. And I've seen people look at this and say that uh, Mary bore Jesus, and that's the res- that's the being saved through childbearing. And I don't think that that's what he's alluding to at all. I think that's actually writing something on the text there. But if you look at where it goes, here's what her link is to teaching and instruction, and it's so cool. Through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So there's kind of a question mark when you read that verse. Is he talking about the women need to continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint? Or is he saying, ladies, this is your mission field. Here's where I want you focused. I don't want you focused on on leading churches. I don't want you focused on, on being preachers and teachers. You have something, and this is not trying to placate anybody, because if you look at what has happened to children in this country— because they don't because the godly influences of, of fathers and mothers has been eroded. The very first person to teach your children about God is probably your wife. And that's where he wants them focused. And then he wants them focused on bringing up the next generation of mothers, as he as he would say in Titus, to do that very same thing to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children and that, because that is such an important influence. And if you don't believe that our society knows that if it can erode the bond between fathers and or husbands and wives and mothers and their children, and that that can't affect the change that they want in society, you just have to ask yourself, where did the explosion of all this, all the discussion of transgenderism come out of? Why are we targeting children with these messages? Why are, why are we peppering in the acceptance of homosexuality throughout all the cartoons now. What's what's going on with this? What he is telling my wife in this verse is she is, even though Will is homeschooled, he still interacts with friends. And I've got to tell you, as much as he loves me, he, he loves being my buddy. But the person that he's going to tell things to first is not me. That she is the firewall between him and what goes on in the world. And we discount that because in a lot of ways, worship has kind of become performance art. It's become a, the focus is put on the person delivering the message as opposed to really saying, okay, this is how God told men to serve. And this is how I want women to serve. I want them to serve their children first. I want their focus there, bringing up that next generation to know who I am and teaching them to persevere in love and sanctity with self-restraint and in faith. Now, I talked a lot there. Let me let you weigh in on that. Let's let's jump back for a second. You said something uh, at the beginning uh, that I, I kind of uh, was kicking around in my head, too. It's the characteristic of submission and why that's such an ugly word. Um, but the irony is you cannot be a Christian if you cannot accept the idea that submission is an absolute requirement. Uh, man or woman. That word, man or woman. Yeah. Well, you can't. Yeah, you just can't be a Christian if you can't submit. 
because the very first idea of submission is that the word of God says that Jesus is equal to God, but he submits himself to the father. He always says stuff like, I do the will of my father. I'm doing, you know, I speak what my father says to say. Jesus is constantly, constantly making this statement that I'm equal to the father, but I submit to the father. So the very, the very head of Christianity, Christ himself, is the model of submission to his father, submission in equality, which is, which is to say you can submit, you can be in subjection, and yet be equal. If you don't believe that's true, then Christianity is a lie because mm-hmm. it's all built on that idea. And then, and then, of course, it drops on us and it says, hey, you're all subject to someone. You're subject to those who rule over you. You're subject to those who are uh, over you in the church. You're subject to uh, children or subject to parents. Uh, this is the language of the New Testament. And if we don't like that word subjection, if we don't like submission, then then the whole foundation of Christianity is lost mm-hmm. because it's all based on the idea that I look at somebody else. Uh, you know, I tell you what, let's just read Paul's words in Philippians 2 because he says it best there. Uh, because he's trying to say, let nothing be done from ambition and conceit, but lowliest of, of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Mm-hmm. Submit. Submit to one and, another. And, and what, fact, it, what right? does he call that in just a couple of verses? He calls it putting on something. The mind of Christ. Uh-huh. Yeah, he says, put on the mind of Christ. Um, you, you have to submit to one another. Um, everybody has to submit. And and if you say, oh, I bristle when I'm told to submit, then you've missed the core concept of Christianity. You've missed what is the fundamental idea, not my will, but yours be done. That's that's what it's all about. And 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 yeah, we live in a society that says, no, do what you want. Do what makes you happy. Pursue the things that you want to do and don't let anybody tell you uh, anything you don't you know you can do whatever you want uh, and that's so self-destructive it's mm-hmm. so utterly and absolutely self-destructive to to not give us roles that we serve God in uh, to say you know what I'll do whatever I want um, you know if, if I want to be the head of the church I'll be the head of the church whether I'm called to that role or not and by the way I'm not called to that role uh, Jared's not called to that role in fact the Bible says only Jesus is called to that role yep but the truth of the matter is, once we say no roles for me, you know, I'm not going to submit to the roles that God says, then might as well reach for the the head of the church because mm-hmm. because if you don't submit to one role, you won't submit to any roles. We all have roles yeah. to fill. Well, and what's interesting to me is the people that are appointed to shepherd the church, the the elders, the 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 pastors, the the bishops or presbyters as they're called throughout your Bible. That I mean, that's the role that we would call an elder. It's not a preacher. It's someone different. But when Peter talks to them and in, what is that, First Peter chapter 5, he even tells them that, that, that if you— that if you're going to take that role who as someone who shepherds, who's, who's sort of a leader of God's people, not the head of the church, but the leader of God's people, that you're not doing it for the power. You're not doing it so that you can lord it over the people. You're doing it because you're trying to be a servant to the people. And that fundamentally gets to one of the thoughts that I had, you know, submission. What we don't get, and I want to get your thoughts on this because I already gave you some of mine. What we don't often pay attention to is the fact that we have reversed the dynamic, that we forget that worship and our times of assembly are about service. They're not about 
about getting attention for me that if the man at the front of the congregation who's preaching, and this is something I've told every congregation that I've ever worked with, if you think that I'm doing this for my glory, if you ever get to the point where you question whether or not I'm doing this because of my love for you or my love for God, then fire me. Get rid of me. Because that is not a problem that you want. And yet what we see that what was the lesson that Jesus taught the the disciples the night he's betrayed are sitting there bickering again, third or fourth time about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he wants to finally teach him this lesson. So he'll stop arguing about this one stupid thing. What does he do? I mean, you're talking about God, according to Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and John 1, you're talking about God that created the universe, puts on a towel and washes their feet. Yeah, scares them to death. Scares them to death. Peter's like, oh, you're not washing my feet. No way. Jesus said, if you don't let me wash you, you can't be part of me. And and, I mean, that's got to be the most non-woke thing ever. That, that, I mean, surrender. I'm the, the God of the universe is surrendering his will to his father that same night that he's bending his will to the needs of the of the fallible, frail, in, in that particular instance, not very godly people that are following him. And that's yeah. sort of what we forget about. And one of the things that I was really thinking about, and I want you to talk about that a little bit before I introduce another thought. Well, let's go ahead and, and let's jump into that for a moment. Okay. Uh, you you were talking earlier about the idea that we what we miss about the assembly is it's not about us. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, we say it's about God. He gets the right to dictate. This is his worship. He gets the right to dictate what pleases him. He gets the right to say, this is what I desire. And I think that, that for the last 50, 75 years, most most of the denominations and a lot of churches that I would say were the Lord's church have slowly drifted to this idea of what makes us feel good. You know, I, I've mm-hmm. heard Christians, people that I hold as Christians say, well, do I feel edified? You know, edification is not a feeling. Um, yeah. And why is it about you? But people say that all the time. But, but it, it, you know, do I feel edified? Do I, uh, what am I getting from these things? Yeah, people leave, and, be, and, leave truth to go somewhere where they know error is being taught because they feel more encouraged. Yes, yes. It's, it, I just, you know, I, Paul pulls out his hair, you know, uh, you know, Jesus just groans to hear somebody who talks like that, who says things like, well, you know, I, God sets these roles up because this is, this is where I want you. Uh, he says, you know, the hand can't say to the foot, oh, you know, I have no use for you. Or the eye can't say to the ear, I wish I was an ear. He says, if we if we didn't have roles, this is 1 Corinthians 12. This is assembly language. Mm-hmm. He says, if we didn't have different roles that we fulfill, this doesn't work. Yeah. And this works to glorify God and to serve one another. And when we start saying things like, oh, I want a different job. I want a different role. It's about us. And, you know, I, I fundamentally, when it becomes about us, mm-hmm. uh, again, we have drifted off everything that matters because that's not the Philippians chapter two mindset of putting on, you know, a, a thing that says whatever other people need first. That's that's what's lost uh, is that sense of who is worship for? Because if you think it's for you, yeah, you really need to un- misunderstand it. And if and if you're saying my role isn't sufficient for me, then you're saying it's about you. Yeah, yeah. And, and what I was thinking about when I was thinking about that is there is this really great story. In fact, when I mentioned it to you, you mentioned two or three others that we could talk about, and it shows up in. And I'm going to paraphrase because it's a long story, but in First Samuel 16. 
Saul, the king, the first king of Israel, had messed up so royally, pardon the pun, <laughs> the king royal, the king royally messed up that he actually because he made it about himself and and building himself a statue and and claiming a conquered king for his own that God said I want you to go destroy that nation I want you to go destroy their animals their livestock don't keep anything that he had completely ignored what God said and at the same time was telling the people and Samuel that he had done all that God had said to do and so God tells Samuel I'm going to put somebody on the throne who's after my own heart so you get to 1 Samuel 16, and he goes and he meets a man named Jesse. Jesse is not the king, but Jesse has eight sons. And he brings seven sons in, in from descending order, from the oldest down to the youngest, uh, although the youngest doesn't get there right at first, that he brings seven sons before Samuel to find the one that God had anointed, the one that God was going to choose to be the king. And the first guy, and I'll just read the first one. So he has this sacrifice for Jesse and or, or with Jesse, and then they sit down, they're eating this meal. And it says, when they entered, he looked at Eliab, this was Jesse's oldest, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. That Saul had been a tall man, a muscular man. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. And it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, flash forward to the end of the story. This is where David is chosen to be king of Israel, the man after God's own heart. Now, I want to be very careful. In fact, my wife said, say this twice. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that God chooses men and, and not women because he looks at the heart of men and the heart of women and the hearts of women are corrupt. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is sometimes the reasoning of God does not make sense to us. It, it's not evidently apparent why he chooses one and not the other. But God, uh, that God is making a choice and it's not an arbitrary choice. So that when he says that the men that 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 wives are supposed to be in submission to their husbands when he says that women are supposed to submit and learn in a submissive quiet way and that they're not supposed to challenge a man or question or or question uh, or lead a congregation or or even question his authority in the middle of his teaching and one point that he points out in first corinthians that he's not saying that they don't have value Sometimes we just aren't told why God chooses who he chooses, but the choice he makes is important. And to be a person after his own heart means that when he says to do this, when he makes this choice, when he gives this instruction, that I'm going to choose to follow it because that is exactly what the Bible tells us that being after God's heart would actually mean is, is that that was the failing of Saul was that Saul that Saul did not keep the commandment of the Lord and that it wasn't important to him and that's what was different about David. And so if we want to be people after God's heart, then we look at his instruction and even if it doesn't make any sense, we still we still hear it, we still follow that instruction. Now you had a couple of other examples of that that I thought were brilliant. Why don't you go and bring those up? Well, you know, as I was thinking about the idea that that God sometimes picks people that we just aren't sure why he picked them. Um, you know, why Why was it God picked Aaron as the high priest when Moses was the one 
that was doing all the work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting to think about that. Why, why is it one and not the and other? There was a um, lot of honor associated with that. Right, right. And it's interesting because, you know, Aaron, you know, seems to make a mess of things pretty, pretty quickly. And, and yet God says, no, Aaron's the one that's going to do this. Um, I think of one of the most powerful women in the Bible. Maybe maybe we can make the case she's the most powerful woman in the Bible. And she did not like her role. She she wanted out of it. And uh, we know her as Esther. And she was put in a position of power unlike any other woman in history. Because the Persian Empire, most powerful uh, empire in history up to that time. Mm-hmm. And, and she's not happy about her role in this. And her uncle reminds her, you know, you're here for this for this moment yeah. you're here because of this uh, uh because of the needs of the moment you're the one that you know he doesn't say god but you know that's what he's implying that god put you here in this role because he said this was your thing to do and the point is whether i'm you know david whether i'm you know aaron you know god gives us different roles mm-hmm. and there are times where we think our roles we're we're kind of thinking well well, my role seems rather, you know, uh, diminished to some degree. Mm-hmm. Ironically, you know, Paul would say, hey, you know, the weaker vessels, we we actually give more honor to. Yeah. Um, I think of, I think of like Ananias's role in preaching to Paul the gospel. I mean, uh, he just gets just a few verses to be the guy that teaches Paul. But think about what the repercussion of that was. Uh, of the significance of what that accomplished by can by being the man willing to go to Paul, that was his ability. Yeah. Um, and God is saying, I have different roles for men and women. I have different roles for older people and younger people. Mm-hmm. I have different roles for married people and single people. Everybody has different roles. And God says, I did this because I'm God. I'm wise. I know what I'm doing. God shouldn't have to tell us he knows what he's doing. He does anyway sometimes, but he shouldn't have to tell us that. He shouldn't have to remind us to say, I knew what I was doing when I designed the church. Mm-hmm. And what we've been saying here is that this is not Paul's design for the church. This is God's design for the church. Yeah. And God knows what he's doing. And there's times where I I question, I wonder, well, I wonder why we do it this way and that. And sometimes I can find an answer and sometimes... I'm not even sure I can find an answer, but I've always I've always known that God has my best interest at heart. God is far wiser than I'll ever be, mm-hmm. obviously. And I don't need to I don't need to justify God and the decisions he makes. He's the one that sets up roles, right. and I accept that. Well, and I think that that's that's sort of the thought behind it that when you look at the push in our society and and I've heard I've heard sort of the logic behind it before that you know what what if a man isn't qualified what what if you know what if the or I'm sorry now what if a man is qualified what if what if a woman is just super qualified to teach what if what if she's the best teacher of all time what if she's really eloquent there are still roles where those things can be used when we say I'm not going to do it God's way then it stops being anything that will honor God it, there are so many instances we're changing small, what seems like small things to us because our culture doesn't bear them out anymore, become large stumbling blocks for people further down the road. And you look at how many times the Bible, as we pointed out, has, has expressed God's desire for 
men and women to be equally saved. This is not speaking to their worth, but the question is, what kind of values are coming out of society that, that cause us to challenge these, and, and whose voice are we really listening to? What we need are people who listen to what the Bible says and proclaim it the way the Bible says to proclaim it, because this is not about us, and it never has been. This is about serving the people around us in the way God wants them served. What kind of things do you see contributing to this to this confusion? Well, I think that uh, we have an adversary that wants people to to reject the idea of you know everything has a way of uh, of being worked out. I think that uh, we have to first and foremost point to him and say that that's you know that's just a mindset that's delivered to people that uh, that they want to believe that they're taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. I think there are always people that want power. Yeah. Um, and let's just say this isn't a woman or man issue. This is a human issue. Okay. Um, this is the issue of men that take on that title pastor, mm-hmm. but aren't actually called or uh, qualified to do so. Right. Um, you know, the Bible gives very specific qualifications for somebody who would take on the role of a, and a pastor as an elder, as a shepherd. Uh, a person that would take those roles on, and a lot of people would would take that role regardless. I think that people have craved power, uh, you know, oftentimes, and that's that's the sense of what it is uh, to be told I have a role that I have to fill, and I you know can't exceed that. Takes humility that a lot of us don't have, and if I'm not, you know, I want to be the shepherd in church, but I'm not actually called or qualified to do so. It's not my role. Maybe I want more than that. I think that those might be some of the things that motivate people to that. Um, and I think that, that we also have to consider the idea that there's been, you know, there has been abuse uh, for those that, uh, you know, having women that have that have suffered because yeah. of because of the genuine characteristics of misogyny, mm-hmm. because it really is a thing. And because, you know, there have been whether it's husbands that haven't loved their wives as Christ loved the church. Right. Or that there are, you know, men that have, you know, within the church that have failed to, um, you know, failed to to lead in godly ways. Those failures resonate with some people and remind some people, uh, giving them thought to say maybe, maybe, maybe another way is better, as opposed to actually just saying what is what does actually God want us to do? Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the worst thing that we can do is ever be tone deaf to this. Um, the last thing I ever want to do when somebody asks me why I women don't teach or women don't preach in the congregations that I'm part of or women aren't part of the eldership is not to just show them one verse. I, I want to listen to why they're struggling with that because there's obviously something in there that they don't perceive about themselves that's at the root of that struggle. But the minute we stop being in subjection and submission to God's word, then even if we are believing ourselves to be praising God while we do it, then what we are offering to him is not what he wants. And the minute that our personal identity or our perceived identity, you know, we live in a culture of of identity, whenever that identity becomes more important to us than the identity of following God and listening to his word, then we're in a dangerous place. And while this may not have been um, the easiest topic to do, I'm glad we did it. 
Um, it'd be interesting to see if our subscriber count goes up or down after this. <laughs> but I'm glad that we did it because I really want, I really want for two things. Number one, I want our sisters in Christ to, to, to feel like their voice matters, even if their voice is not present in the teaching and the instruction and the assembly for the reasons that Paul outlined that maybe we don't understand all that well in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I want them to understand that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to, to feel like, I'd like to have an answer to this that's not just, well, because I said so because I'm a man and you don't get to question me. So I really hope that we've delved far enough into this today that if you're struggling with this question or you know somebody who's struggling with this question, that we've at least maybe opened some doors to communication. But the other thing that I want for all of us as we go through this topic, because this is not the only point where our culture tries to deceive us, and like I said, we're going to talk about this idea of the woke Jesus next week, that I don't want any of us to be deceived by our culture and into believing something about God or his word or his worship that isn't true. And until we can speak just like the Bible speaks and until, we, until we're ready to acknowledge that the Bible isn't misogynistic or it's not racist or it's not promoting those things, that what I want is for people to keep asking questions and giving good answers until we can say, okay, I'm... I'm, I'm trusting God. This may not be what I wanted to hear, but I'm trusting God. What do you got? You know, and that's an important point to say. Uh, it's okay to ask questions. It's oh, yeah. okay to have, you know, concerns or doubts or, you know, I'm not sure I understand why this is. Um, you know, God, David wanted to build the temple. God says, that's not going to be your role. Yeah. Um, so David instead says, well, I'm going to do everything I can right up to that point, you know, and of course he prepares everything for the temple and such. And God's okay with that, you know, um, but there's always a, well, why not me? You know, why, uh, what, what is that about? And God's okay with us asking questions. In fact, mm-hmm. I, I would suggest to you, you know, the language uh, of the scriptures oftentimes talks about uh, contending with God, being a virtuous thing, to, to, to strive with God. The very name Israel of the Old Testament uh, that we're told today, we're the spiritual Israel, means the one who strove with God. And the idea was that he, you know, he really grappled with difficult things and he, and he struggled with, you know, with God himself. We're going to struggle with things and it's okay to have questions. It's okay to, to, to wonder about these things. Um, in the end, I mean, we want to be godly people. We want to be David and say, well, if that's not my role, okay, let me find what I can do. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch, you know, we don't often remember, but you know, eunuchs were forbidden from worshiping God in the temple. Yeah. So it's interesting that the Ethiopian eunuch makes a journey of 2,000 miles to go all the way to Jerusalem just to not be able to go into the temple. He's not saying, I'm so upset that my role's been denied to me. He's grateful for that. And you know what God did for him? God said, that guy, he's going to get a special a special delivery of the gospel. He sent Philip to go preach to him the gospel. You wonder why he sent it to him? Because he was the kind of guy that said, my role is I don't get to go to the temple because of because of who I am. But I still need but to be I'm gonna where do I'm everything else. God. I'm gonna do everything I can. Yeah. I'm gonna do everything that I is in my role because I want to do what God wants me to do. And that's the that's the thing about the the righteous mindset that says, okay, this isn't my role. What is my role? Because I sure want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's a mindset to put on. Yeah, I think we just need to start the whole podcast over with that point. I mean, that's a great point. But so much of of our 
focus is on how this makes me feel, whether we're men or women, that yeah. that they're that guys we talk about the same burdens today, that you know how this makes me feel, how I feel. I mean, I can't I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with with somebody who's just raging about things that are going wrong in our culture and how it makes them feel. Don't let how you feel become your guide for truth. That truth right. truth is absolute and it's not abstract. And I'm not saying that there aren't people out there who are capable of good Bible exegesis or 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 are eloquent speakers or even knowledgeable about the word of God. But what I'm saying is that for reasons some of which were given and we might not really understand as well as we like and others others aren't we are not given for whatever reason these are the roles that God has dictated and to seek him we got to we got to stay with it and that the devil is trying to undermine that all the time by trying to make you feel like God thinks of you as less of a person or or the people of the church think of you as less of a person because they don't value you that God has use for your talents they may they just may not be in the way and at the time when you would like them to be used all right, yeah. I'm going to run this episode by my wife before I put it out. <laughs> but uh, I want to I want to thank our audience, and uh, you know, you are the reason why Brian and I do this. And hey, I I didn't even tell Brian this yet, but biblically speaking, is closing in on 500 YouTube subscribers. That's that's kind nice. that's kind of Excellent. rare for a religious channel who's trying to teach the truth. So. I have a special favor to ask of all of you that if you will watch our content on YouTube, I mean, let's face it, you're going to be watching something, right? If you'll watch our content on YouTube and you'll subscribe to that channel, we could be one of the few sources for good, truthful, biblical information on YouTube and have over a thousand subscribers. And once we do, our numbers are going to rocket. It's going to spread our message to more and more people. And it just takes off once you get over a thousand. So all we need is another 550 of you, actually not even quite that many, 546 of you to subscribe. And if you'll share this, if you'll encourage others, if you haven't subscribed already, please go and find our channel and subscribe and be sure to watch our content. I put out at least 10 shorts a week uh, along with this podcast and going to get back to doing some long form videos as well. But there's just a whole lot of good stuff on there, and it'll help, you know, it'll help me do things like this. And then also, you know, have, have been able to bring Brian in on this. It's been fun and uh, allows us to continue to do more podcasting and maybe even some live streams, some live Q&As. That'd be fun. We hadn't got to do one of those yet, but live Q&A. So if you would be so gracious as to join our Biblically Speaking family so that we can hit that number and really go out and and spread the news of the kingdom around the world in the way God wants it spread, I sure would appreciate it. But for all of us here at Biblically Speaking, I'm Jared. I'm Brian. Have a good day, and God bless.